Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a 40-minute conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's very important episode, I'm joined by Louis Asquith, Director of Legal, Policy, and Operations at Mermaids, where I ask them, how can we support trans youth in the United Kingdom and abroad? Actually, all around the world, honey. Yes. Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. I'm very excited for our guest this week, who is Louis Asquith. You are the Director of Legal and Policy and Operations at Mermaids, a UK charity that has been supporting transgender and gender diverse kids, young people and their families since 1995. Ah, how are you, Louis? Hi, Jonathan. I'm wonderful. How are you? Good. So I do want to give our listeners just a little brief background. We first ran across you on this Twitter thread that was discussing a ruling by the UK's high court, deciding whether people under the age of 18 can understand enough about puberty blockers and hormones to make a decision about whether to take them or not. The court ended up saying that people under 16 are unlikely to be able to consent to hormone blockers. Now a court has to decide whether it's in someone's best interest, I'm holding up air quotes everyone, to start puberty blockers before a doctor can prescribe them. So I do, you know, for our episode, I have, you know, two pretty large questions. One is, you know, what's going on with this case? What does this case mean for the lives of trans people, gender nonconforming people that would want to be able to have access to these hormone blockers along with their families? That's, you know, one angle that I very much am curious about. But the wider question is, there is this growing rise of transphobia. I, I, you know, it doesn't seem to be something new. We see in historical writings that, you know, colonial British people from the 1700s and 1800s were not living for finding people that, you know, were trans or gender non-conforming, not that that's what we called us then. So what's going on in the United Kingdom, but what does this mean for the rest of the world? So welcome. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Um, Two massive, massive areas. And let's just dive in. Let's just dive in. So in relation to, let's start with the UK. And I think it, what might be quite helpful is for people to know what blockers are, first off. Um, some people listening might not be aware. They're referred to as hormone blockers, puberty blockers. The kids we work with usually just refer to them as blockers. Um, and what they essentially do is they pause a puberty. So they suppress, in scientific terms, they, they suppress the hormones that allow a puberty to happen, typically estrogen or testosterone. So, and I think what's really important and what I'm going to be doing the, you know, the entirety of our conversation is making sure that we're asking these questions from a trans perspective, because I think what we're finding at the moment, not only in the UK, but globally, is that we're talking about trans healthcare from a cisnormative perspective too often. And we need to make sure that the trans narrative, the trans experience is coming through and making sure that we're leading and listening through those stories. So I'm going to be bringing it back to that as we go through this. So what are hormone blockers to trans individuals is how I want to phrase this question. And hormone blockers to trans, non-binary, gender diverse young people, if they're struggling with gender dysphoria, and we know that not every trans non-binary or gender diverse person does struggle with gender dysphoria, that immense distress, that consistent and persistent distress that your body or social interactions might provoke within you. If somebody's struggling with that, and specifically here in relation to blockers, it's in relation to bodily changes. If their if distress is arising as a result of what's happening to their body, there is the option, there is a type of healthcare which is here blockers that allows that person to pause that puberty that's creating that distress. So that's what we're talking about here in relation within a trans context. So what's happening in the UK in relation to this type of, of healthcare? The first thing to know, I think, is that this form of healthcare is accessible uh, predominantly or primarily through our national health service. So a young person, if they have the support of their doctor, their GP, if they have the support of their parents, may be referred to what we call the Gender Identity Development Service, which is run by the Tavistock and Portman Clinic. Now, there are going to be loads of names here. So tell me if we need to go back over. I don't want it to be too jargony. Okay, so 
let me know if, if that's the case. Well, I do just want to just for American people, because mm. like, you know, here, honey, we don't get to have healthcare as a right. It's very much a profitable thing. It's very much a nightmare. Um, so, you know, the National Health Service or the NHS is a, is the United Kingdom runs this gorgeous health service that it, you know, its citizens are entitled to. It's, it is socialized healthcare, right? I mean, it's like you get to sign up for it and like it's automatic. And so it's, it's fierce. We love it. It's that's someday we'll get it here. Um, so, but basically through that state run program, there is a, a program within that for people with the support of their doctor, the support of their parents. And then the, you know, the young person themselves wanting to do it, they can be referred to this program, which was called what again? The gender. Yeah, it's a service. So the Gender Identity Development Service. So this is for young people who are gender exploring, gender diverse, are having some kind of experience that requires them to have support, expert support. And the, pre the predominant support that's offered by what's referred to as JIDS, so the Gender Identity Development Service, JIDS, is psychosocial support. It's talking. It's emotional support. It's talking to someone who understands these things, someone who is learned in gender identity, and it allows that young person to express what they're going through, express what they're feeling, working with that expert to see what's in their best interest as them, you know, in, in themselves as, as individuals. So as and when and if a person accesses JITS, and currently there is a around a two and a half year waiting list for this service. And I can't bold italic underline that enough. That's significant. There's no other area of healthcare, as far as I'm aware in this country, that has such a high waiting list. The NHS constitution asks that everybody is seen within 18 weeks within this country, which is an amazing, amazing uh, aim, right? Two and a half years, our gender exploring, gender diverse trans young people are asked to wait currently. And quite frankly, it's not good enough. And well, just to clarify that too, it's like 18 weeks, that ends up being like four and a half months. So if the constitution says 18 weeks, that's for eight, 12, that's like eight times longer than what the constitution says anyone should be waiting. It's, it's, it's so significant. And this is what we need to remember is that there's a person in the center of this who's waiting, who's going through these potentially these bodily changes that's creating this distress. So let's bring it back to the people who actually experience dysphoria. So those who access JIDS who are experiencing a distress, a persistent and consistent distress and talking to their doctor about it. If they are of a, a certain stage of puberty, and are perceived by their doctor as being someone that might benefit from having their puberty paused, they may then be uh, processed in a way or reviewed as being somebody that might benefit from, from blockers. So that's, that's the process that someone's going through. The consultation period, so when someone actually gets through the door at the Gender Identity Development Service, which, as I say, they've been on that waiting list for a significant period of time already, when they're through the door, they'll have a consultation period, which might take approximately six months long to 10 months long. I think 10 months is the average at the moment, actually, for that consultation period. So this is not a walking through the door, which is actually often professed, walking through the door. Um, Hi, what's your name? X, great. Here you go. Here's some hormone blockers. That is not what's happening here. We're talking about intense conversation, intense uh reviews, intense psychosocial. Yeah, yes. exactly. With with experts. So I really want to hammer that home because there's a lot of misconceptions about what actually happens within this service. And so as I say, if, if somebody is reviewed by a clinician to be someone that might benefit from blockers, they're then referred onto a, a separate pathway, an endocrinology pathway that actually deals with the hormone side of things. Those uh, conversations don't start until somebody is already going through puberty. So if we're talking science, and I'm not a scientist, as you know, but if we're talking science, the point of puberty that somebody needs to get to before this is even considered is Tanner stage two. What does that mean? Typically, it means that underarm hair is starting to grow, uh, breast buds, buds might start to be grow, that kind of thing. So no one prepubescent will be considered for hormone blockers. And that's really important to, to know also. It's something not, that not everybody knows. 
So this is the, this is, I hope that's helpful. I think it's important for people to understand the process, to understand what, you know, the treatment that we're actually, that's actually at the heart of this, this case is, because we're ultimately dealing here simply with a form of healthcare that particularly addresses a specific form of distress for a particular population of people. And, and it's, we're really talking about buying time for people that are dealing with gender dysphoria. So I, I, you know, I've seen J.K. Rowling's tweets. I think a lot of us have heard, um, you know, a lot of the transphobic vitriol that comes from this, which is you're turning, you know, little girls into boys. You're turning little boys into girls. You're doing, you know, lifelong, lifelong, irreparable, un, unchangeable harm to young people is what a lot of transphobic people say. And what I hear you saying is actually this is a very labor intensive process. You have to have the support of, well, not only the child, but the parent and the doctor. There is a 10 month consultation process before anything is administered. Um, and even if we're talking about administering anything via a hormone blocker, this is someone who is in that Tanner stage two development of their puberty, which obviously everyone's puberty is different, but would you say it's safe to assume that's like what? 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 is it? I mean, it's not like four, five, six, seven. It's exactly, we're getting yeah. up into double digits. We're getting up into our teenage years. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think the average age of starting puberty is, is around sort of 11 years old, isn't it? Something, something like that. Um, and just to, to address the, the point you made there about what is ultimately this question of regret. You know, to put it bluntly, this idea that that young people are going to start on a pathway or be subject to a pathway and and regret it in the future. Let's pull it back again and really talk about this idea of reversibility or irreversibility from a trans perspective. You know, when I think blockers, right? Like I had gynecomastia my whole life. Like for some reason, like I just like hereditarily, like I I had like little extra breast tissue. Like my whole life I've had it. And when I was like 28, my doctor was like, does it really bother you? And I was like, yes, it's like kind of bothering me. Like I, you know, it bothers me. And so he gave me this like hormone blocker that I took for like three months and they went away and they've never come back, which is like kind of fierce. But if you're taking a blocker when you're a young person, that's not creating permanent change to your body. Am I, am I right? I mean, I don't know, but I would just I'm guessing that if you take a hormone blocker to pause puberty, once you get off of that hormone blocker, you would then resume puberty in a way that you would have just anyway. So really, it's a matter of buying time. It's not about doing something that's irreversible in terms of a a hormone blocker. Exactly right. Hormone blockers are are globally um, renowned for being a reversible uh, treatment. specifically the Endocrine Society and the World Professional Association for Transgender Health or WPATH uh, recognises it as such. And it's exactly that. It's If somebody stops taking it, then the puberty that would have happened will will continue to, to, to happen. Yeah. The question around reversibility, um, it, it comes up regularly. And I think it, it's a really important question to ask. And it's not something that we should be scared of, of of talking about. But what we ask is that we talk about it, as I say, from a trans perspective. So what does reversibility mean or irreversibility mean to a trans gender diverse young person? The young people we talk to at Mermaids, the irreversibility that they fear, that they're scared of, is being asked or made to progress uh, into a puberty and allow a puberty to establish itself that is creating a distress and an anxiety within them. And we must remember that what does establish itself is a pu- if a puberty is, uh, does happen, the sexual characteristics that are established, etc., they are as irreversible as, for example, the, the changes that might happen if one takes cross-sex hormones. But I think what's important to note here is that the, the case that, that we've referred to earlier, we're talking about hormone blockers. And when we're talking about reversibility in respect of hormone blockers, here we've got a, a treatment that, as I said, is globally renowned of being reversible 
or the option of an irreversible puberty being allowed to continue. So it makes no sense when, to me, when you have a young person, as I say, who's dealing with dysphoria, who's dealing with the distress, who's asking for help, being told that no, you have to go on to experience something that you're telling me explicitly is causing you harm. And I understand if a person who isn't trans is listening to this, I understand the idea of why would you want to, or how, why would you want to stop a puberty? And the simple answer is we wouldn't, we don't want to stop puberty unless it's necessary. And this is the point to some people, it's simply necessary. It's necessary for them to continue with their lives. It's necessary, Jonathan, for them sometimes to even just walk out of their bedroom. You know, and this is the this is the real life experience that we hear at Mermaids. It's about allowing people to feel confident in themselves, in their bodies, and hormone blockers for some people allows that to happen. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think you know, for me, you're preaching to the choir, but I think it's so important for us. To- you know, for listeners to really drive that home. If you are someone who is born a cisgender female, but you are dealing with gender dysphoria, you are very much, you know, in your heart of hearts, you, but actually I think that's, I think that's also really important for us in this particular case to separate because hormone blocking, right? Like pausing a puberty for so many reasons for the healthcare of a trans person is it's necessary for mental, spiritual, sexual um, health. And so, you know, it's it's so layered. But when you're talking about, I wrote down as you were saying that, it's much easier to pause, right? Give the person, give the family some time to think. What are, you know, how do I identify? How do I want to live the rest of my life? Do I, am I at peace with who I am? Is there actually gender dysphoria going on? Those are big questions. And sometimes puberty forces those questions to be answered before the person is ready, before the family is ready. And that's where these blockers come in. And they're so important. Now, you know, when I think about the JK Rowling's or other turfs, a lot of times they will talk about people who went through a full on transition. They didn't just do blockers. They had a full, you know, medical transition. They took opposite sex hormones to, you know, transition fully to opposite sex. And then there were questions of XYZ, XYZ. That's a very different thing than talking about pausing someone in their youth. And um, I just think that's also really important to bear is that once the puberty is done for, you know, a young person, it's really hard to go back. It's really medically invasive. It's really, it's a lot more medically dangerous than if you would have chose to pause in the first place. And I also just think, you know, there does seem to be an intersection of a lot of trans-exclusionary radical feminists who, if you were to put it as far as, you know, you shouldn't be playing God, you were born one way or another, you know, like this, you know, society's gotten too much. Well, then wouldn't that be true of pregnancy? Wouldn't that be true of if you got pregnant, you shouldn't be taking any sort of birth control? But really, it's my body, my choice. If it's, if you're a young person, you have the support of your family and your doctor, you it should be your body, your choice, especially when it comes to hormone blockers. I mean, I do feel that that is such, you know, incredibly aggressive government overreach. And it's also, I feel like cherry picking very uh, radicalized outside fringe cases of people who did maybe regret or did fully transition and then felt later on in life that, you know, they didn't want to, but it's a false conflation. I think what I want to first say is thank you for separating out the different forms of healthcare that, um, you know, trans people have the opportunity to access at any particular time. Hormone blockers are completely separate to, as you say, cross-sex hormones, or if somebody um, has surgery later on in life, they're completely different, different treatments. They're completely different consent processes. They're all to do with our bodies. They're all to do with what makes us feel comfortable in our own skin. And you're right, I think, to pick up on the fact that this ultimately is, and this case is, ultimately a question around bodily autonomy and what somebody has the right to say about their own body. So, of course, we're going to start to think, well, what knock-on effect could this have? What does this mean? What does it mean for somebody who gets gets pregnant? What does it mean for somebody who wants to take contraception? 
Now, there's been, as you can imagine, quite a lot of legal conversation around this and the potential domino effect and knock-on effects that this case might have. There is, I think, a an overarching belief that a case in respect of abortion, for example, wouldn't be successful, which in itself is quite interesting because then where are we? Then we are even more so in a position whereby trans people are simply just being treated differently because because they're trans or because well because the healthcare is simply related to trans individuals. So either way, we're in a very uncomfortable position in respect of our autonomy around our own bodies, and it's something, Jonathan. I can't exaggerate enough. And whenever I get the opportunity to talk about this, it's a it strikes right through the heart of our human rights, child rights. When we walk out of the door every single day, we walk out of the door expecting to be respected for who we are. Why should a young person, because they have a gender history that is different to the majority of people, have access to treatment, not well, potentially even denied, we don't know yet, denied, or that access being made to be so complicated and confusing. I can't exaggerate enough the implications potentially that this case may have. The implications not only for trans individuals, but what noise and message it gives for other areas of of society, other areas of healthcare decision-making. And if anybody's listening to this not knowing about this case, I really hope they're sitting up and waking up to what's happening. Well, let's really quickly tell them where this case left off. So, yeah. I mean, I think I know, but I don't want to fuck it up. And I don't either. Um, <laughs> well, I, so, I can try and you can tell me if it's wrong. But basically what I understand is that previous to this ruling, it was that, you know, anyone under the age of 16, if they had the consent of their parent, obviously, you know, the person themselves and then their doctor, they could be referred to JIDS and then you know, eventually referred to have a hormone blocker after the 10 month, you know, consultation period. And, you know, it, it was already difficult and already jumping through several hoops. It wasn't just, you know, go in the door, breeze out with your blockers. It was, as you said, already a major thing. What the high court ruled in December was, is that there's a high possibility that people under the age of 16 are not able to understand the ramifications you know, they don't have the mental fortitude, even with the parent and even with the doctor to make those decisions. So if they do get to a point after the consultation period with JIDS, with their one doctor and their parent, they still would then need to go to another court and be reviewed by another court for final approval. So it's adding a much more like constrained red tape circle to jump through at the end of what's already a very difficult, constrained process to achieve in the first place. Yeah, I mean, well, well said. Um, the the heartbeat of this case was asking: Can a person under eighteen validly consent to hormone blocking treatment? It was asking to identify when a child was competent in law to be able to validly consent to hormone blockers. And to put people in the picture in respect of where, and as you said where the law was before, people under 16, if they were deemed competent by a clinician to understand the repercussions, the risks, etc., of a particular form of healthcare, they were, they are permitted through common law to be able to make decisions about their own healthcare, decisions about their own body, irrespective of actually whether a parent agrees or not. In respect of 16 and 17-year-olds, there is a default position that people who are 16 and 17 are essentially treated like adults. So they are, by default, um, are deemed competent to be able to make decisions about their own health care. So what this case was doing was putting that on the line. That was the issue. The court was not asking whether hormone blockers are good or bad. And that's really important to note. This wasn't a trial around blockers themselves. This was about saying, can a person under 18 consent to these, right? The court decided, and every time I say it, it blows my mind. So apologies for the pause there. But the, the, the court decided that those under 16 are highly unlikely or they are doubtful that 
somebody under 16 will ever be able to consent to hormone blockers. Why that's significant is that I don't know. And as you can imagine, back in the office, we're researching this. But as far as I have seen so far, I don't know of any other form of healthcare that a court has said blanket a young person under 16 is next to impossible to be able to consent to this. And then it went further and said for 16 and 17 year olds, so ordinarily when you're treated like an adult, so that's, if you're 16 and 17, the court still raised doubt for those individuals as to whether they will be able to consent, which it nearly blew my head off when I read that. That is unprecedented. The idea, blanket, that for one particular form of healthcare, a 16 and 17-year-old, there was doubt around whether they generally would be able to ever consent is remarkable. Because consent's a very personal thing. Consent's about dealing one-on-one with your clinician in a private forum, the clinician knowing you, understanding you, understanding your needs. And really, from, from that perspective, working with you and your family or guardian, whoever you're with at that particular time, if that's appropriate and necessary, working with you to work out what's in your best interest. So this is a, an unprecedented decision. It's simply because the court hasn't previously identified a particular treatment as being one in respect of which is it's nearly impossible to demonstrate competence. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, I was writing down HIV. I was writing down cancer. I was writing down pregnancy because it's like, if you're under 16 and you get exposed to an STD, if you're under 16 and you get raped, if you're under 16 and so what? Like you can't terminate a pregnancy. You can't like get treatment because you don't, if you get diagnosed with cancer, you maybe would have to withhold treatment because maybe you can't consent to what it's going to do to your young 16 year old body. I mean, there's so many areas where it's, you know, but I I'll, I have a question about the high court. So was this like, is that like the Supreme Court for the United Kingdom? Is there several high courts? How many people are on the high court? It's a really good, really good question. Yeah, the high court. So this was a court of the first instance. So this hasn't been heard by any court before yet. So although it's called the high court, it's not the highest court in the land. There are, there's the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court. So you have a Supreme Court too? We do, yeah. Cute. So the the high court is really just like a court. It's like the first one. It's a, court. It's a prestigious court, though. Was there three justices on that? There was three three judges on this case. Um, that's not always the case. And the president was also sitting on the bench. So it was, it, you know, the bench knew it was a significant case. So the three judges this time around, it's a decision of first instance. It was a decision made by the high court. But as you've already identified, we have courts above the high court. So it may be, and we know that the defendant in the case, the Tavistock, have applied to appeal. So they have applied to the court of appeal, basically saying, we see your order, we don't agree with it, and we want it overturned. So of those three, though, that heard the case in the first place, was it a unanimous decision? Was there one dissenter? It, so so the, the decision was, it, it's not dealt with in a dissent assent way in the High Court or in this instance. It, it was dealt with in a, a judgment was handed down by all three judges. Ew. So we would assume that all three agree with what it said? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, exactly. And anybody can go on and read this, by the way. So, I mean, if, if you want to actually access the judgment, then you can go onto the Mermaid's website. Or, you know, it's there to read. Well, like in the media, as this was happening in December, what was the chatter on Twitter? What was the media saying? Did you notice a lot of like people saying like, you know, like when I read J.K. Rowling's like the tweets that she likes, it is so unnerving because it's so ignorant. You know, she'll retweet stuff that's like, so I'm a six foot seven, 80,000 stone rugby player. And all I got to do is go into an office and say, hey, lads, I think I'm a lady. And then I'm going to go break the back of the top rugby female player in England because of these snowflakes. I mean, I'm paraphrasing there, but um, it's this idea that, you know, uh, killer men are going to go say they're trans to go like compete in sports. Um, 
because that happens all the time. And it's, you know, something that we really need to, uh, I, I can't even make the joke because it's so fucking preposterous. So is that, was that a conflation that was going on in this case and on Twitter where people were trying to make this into something that it wasn't? Because the fact is, is that blockers are pressing pause. They are completely reversible. It is about autonomy of a person controlling their body in the way that they see correct and with their family. I mean, this was already something that a family had to be involved in. And, you know, I just think that for conservatives, both in the United Kingdom and the United States, something that is so big is this idea of personal freedom, right? Like not legislating religion, not not legislating morality in a way that, you know, because this isn't hurting anybody. Like this is, I mean, because when you say, well, you can't legislate morality, of course, like we're going to legislate that you can't do harm to, you know, you can't sexually assault folks. You can't, you know, engage in things that are like outside of the scope of, um, you know, human decency, but pressing pause on someone's puberty so that they can find out and become comfortable in who they are. It's actually to prevent what would end up going on to happen if someone does fully go for a sex change or if they do go to fully transition before they're at an age where they're ready. So this is actually a step to prevent that very thing. So was this case made into something in the public eye that it wasn't? We are in a situation um, in respect of UK media that has been around, I mean, it, it was happening even before this case, Jonathan, that we're living in a a world of of transphobia. Um, The harm, um, the hurt that's being caused through the papers, through broadcast, is something that uh, it's difficult to vocabularise because we listen to the impact, obviously through our service users' stories, and the idea around trans people, the idea around trans lives being made out to be this um, act, this idea that you're presenting as something um, to perpetrate or to cause harm to others. It's an eerie echo of the history in relation to LGB people. Yes, it's, I was it's just an thinking e- that. We, yeah, yeah, and... and how quickly do we forget our history, you know? And I think it's really important when people are feeling confused, they don't quite know, they don't might not know a trans person, they might not know a direct story and all this might be going on. And these people are being presented with, as I say, this transphobic rhetoric weekly. And Mermaid has been subject to that as well because we support the subjects, trans young people. And so this was, this was here even before the Bell case, the Bell case arrived and the media, of course, had huge attention towards it. And you can imagine when the decision came out, which is what it was, i.e. trans young people ultimately have to go to court to obtain health care. The media were on it in a way that wasn't, in my opinion, a balanced on the whole. I'm speaking broadly here. A balanced overview of the situation. It was feeding into this idea that trans healthcare is this conveyor belt mechanism. It's feeding into this idea that we're pushing kids into a way of living. It's feeding into this idea that we're not looking after these young people. And these young people are seeing this and it's causing a, as I say, just so much hurt and anxiety and distress so, yes, this Bell case had media around it. Yes, it was horrific. I mean, I was outside the High Court on the day of the judgment landed. I was the only, as far as I could see, trans ally who was giving interviews that morning. I was around uh, a lot of, of other people providing interviews and giving their opinion. And I felt nervous. I felt scared. Um not because I was worried about being subjected to harm or anything, but the the language and the rhetoric that I was hearing, which was in relation to the young people, obviously, that we represent, was just so uh, hurtful. And the lack of empathy that 
was being shown on not shown towards this very small population of young people was just so heartbreaking. And what we need to, what we hope is going to happen going forward is that the media will actually start giving a platform to these young people themselves. Let's actually start hearing from these young people directly. Let's stop talking to a random person on the street who may have heard of hormone blockers, who may have a friend of a friend of a friend who went to the pub one day and they were told about hormone blockers being this conveyor belt mechanism. And now we're going to talk about it, especially all over the paper situation. Let's sit down with somebody who is actually going through the process, who's on hormone blockers and who's talking about how it may have saved their life. Let's talk about how it might have actually allowed them to go to school one day, because these are the realities. These are the stories that we're not hearing and the media aren't providing. So, we are in a situation, um, it's not getting, getting any better. My time at Mermaids, I've been at Mermaids for two and a half years. It's grown progressively worse, in my opinion. It's interesting hearing you talk about the US. I'd be really keen. I don't know whether I'm allowed to ask you a question, but I'd yeah. be really keen. I'd be really keen to hear about your experience looking at the, you know, uh, the media in the US. Is the similarities, to, uh, you know, uh, is it the same situation? I felt, um, I will tell you that when I went to the United Kingdom for my book tour um, in September, October of 2019, it was the end of 2019. I feel like 2020 completely like, it was like the year that, what, did that happen? Um, but I was blown away by the amount of casual transphobia that I encountered. And also just like the casual transphobia of the media, I thought it was um, worse. I feel like I don't see that on the news is uh, here. Like even living in Texas, I feel like there is more transphobic stuff coming out of the telly in London than what I see here. Um, I felt like it was worse there. Mm -hmm. um, I felt like the LGBTQ community in the United States um, on the whole, more inclusive. I don't feel that there is such an LGB radicalized, you know, trans people not allowed. That's not a phrase that we even have here. I never heard of like LGB, like without the rest until mm -hmm. I went to the UK for that one time. So um, I thought that was interesting. Uh, here where I sense the transphobia a lot more is actually in our legislatures. We yeah. have like 17 states currently in their state legislatures that are trying to legislate against trans athletes in the high school level. They're trying to legislate all sorts of bodily autonomy things um, that I think are very dangerous and remind me of echoes of what's going on in the United Kingdom. But there is a growing sentiment um, of transphobia, both in you know the United Kingdom and in the UK. And um, I am... <laughs> You know, I, I really think that it comes back to this idea of white privilege. And when we see and white and really white supremacy and, and when we mm -hmm. go back to, you know, colonial times, this is something I've learned from my friend Alok and from other scholars in this field. But when you go back to colonial times, there was, you know, it, especially in like the 16 and 1700s, like it was white, white, white man, number one, white woman, a distant number two. And then everybody else was like, you know, all sorts of derogatory different names. And through these last few hundreds of years, you've seen this idea of what counts as white expand. Because in the early 1700s and 1800s in America, like Italians weren't considered white. Irish people weren't considered white. They were seen as invaders, dirty, much in the way that Trump would talk about Mexicans in the 2016 election and, and Muslims and whatever talking about the 2016 election, like for his entire presidency. So, you know, there were people that are in current days are like, oh, yeah, that's a white person. But in the 1700s and 1800s, that wasn't the case. And what we see is through history is there needs to be a group of people who have to be the ones who are singled out and labeled as the problem. And we've seen it play out through history time and time again, whether it was black people, Jewish people, gay people, um, Irish people, Italian people. It's, it's happened all. And it seems like right now. The group that's, and it's happened before, but there's a lot of attention on trans people and there is a lot of discrimination against trans people. And it seems like 
you know, and ultimately I think it's like that, you know, that schoolyard adage of like, well, you don't need to tear someone else down to make yourself feel better. But actually that's what white supremacy is rooted in. It's rooted in tearing everybody else down or forcing them to assimilate to your way of life to perpetuate what the powers that be think is what is best for society. And, um, you know, we've seen the carnage of that play out for hundreds of years and, you know, that kind of leads into this question of like, what is next for us? What is the most effective thing that we can do? You know, we've seen through so many different liberations through time. When we look at the civil rights movement, um, you know, Martin Luther King had a very, you know, specific way of kind of approaching it. Malcolm X had a different way of approaching it. There's so many different ways that we can approach this battle to equality. I do feel this unbridled rage when I think about the transphobia that we're constantly facing because the folks that are imparting the transphobic legislation or just the transphobic rhetoric are people that will never know what it is to live outside of cisgender heteronormativity. And even when J.K. Rowling talks about all the reasons why she's not transphobic, even though she is, and all the reasons why she, you know, is advocating in the quotes that I'm holding up that she says that she is, she is not gender nonconforming. So she cannot legislate and give facts on what it is to be gender nonconforming. She's coming from a complete fear-based place that has no rooting in the reality of the lived experience of trans and gender nonconforming people. And it would be the same as me saying to her, you're not a woman and you have no idea of what the lived experience of what women is. I am not allowed, like, that is dismissing what your lived experience is, which we know is racist to say I don't see color. It's transphobic to say I don't don't agree with your gender expression. It's you're dismissing the lived experience of people who you will never know what it is to live in their experience, which to me is the almost another definition for white supremacy. Mm -hmm. It's that you're going to legislate what people's lifestyles need to be when you have never, you could not know what it is to be anything other than what you are. Um, Yeah. So what's next? Like, do we do it peaceful? Do we all go to law school? Like, what do we do? I know. Oh, well, it's the big question, isn't it? It's the big question. I think just to, just to re- add on to what you were just saying really quickly, the 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 same kind of what what we're seeing in the UK, and I think it's happening in the US as, US as well, is this idea that if people who don't have direct experience are told to give a platform actually to those with the direct experience. They're professing that they're being cancelled. This idea of being shut down, not being able to say what they want to say is, and it's echoing really what you've said already, but it's, it, I think I agree. I do agree. It's this, it's an extra layer to a, a white supremacy attitude towards this whole situation. And I think I mean, certainly we're all going through a period of, I hope we all are going through a period of education around why we are here. And I think that is absolutely crucial. If we don't know why we're, why we are in the situation we're in, we're not going to be able to remedy it. So I think my first answer, my first bullet point to your question is we need to educate ourselves so we know where we have come from, where the situation has come from. And I don't think I mean, we know, and certainly not in the UK, we're not taught that. We're just told this is the situation. This is good. This is bad. This is what you want to be. This is not what you want to be. And that's it. Now, we need to dismantle that. And dismantling, I think, comes from so many different things, so many different people, so many different approaches. And this isn't just a, this one approach will solve this problem. We need everybody to bring their skill set to this situation. If you're a lawyer or you want to go to law school, use that skill set to try and dismantle the situation. You know, if you're, if you just like having a cup of tea with your neighbor, you know, use that skill set to start dismantling the situation. Conversation is so important. And I think we need to not expect people to know the answer to every question. And I think that's something I really want to drive through is that if you are scared to engage in this conversation because you're worried about not knowing enough or saying the wrong thing, look, people know the difference between clumsiness and nastiness. People know if I if I'm being spoken to and somebody uses the wrong pronoun for me, 
I know if someone's doing that maliciously or if not. I want conversations. We want conversations. The kids that we represent want conversations with people that want to move this forward. So I suppose our answer to that question has to be people listening what skill sets do you have? What do you do for work? What do you do outside of work? Which friends do you have? Who do you know that you can have this conversation with? Because every single person has the power to make a piece of change. And I really, truly believe that. This is not a one-horse race. We have to do this together. And on that point, I think we need to, let's reinforce the fact LGBT is an acronym we have to stick together, but not only LGBT community, communities. This is about every suppressed community coming together and those who aren't suppressed, ideally, of course, as well, coming together and saying, this isn't okay. Oh, yeah, actually, when you do look at the face of this, this is simply one population of people being treated differently. Oh, yeah, there's no other... There's no other uh, form of healthcare for young people whereby they have to go and obtain a court order to access what they need. It's smacking us in the face. We need to wake up to what's going on. We need this to be a, a global movement. We need this to be a an opportunity for people to stop looking at at uh, differences in opinion that actually don't create harm. Because underneath, I truly believe that the values and principles that bind us together as communities prevail, and we need to keep hold of that. And remember that we're working under a system that is incredibly powerful. If we divide, it's going to make their job a whole lot easier. And there's really no better way to end off of that and the important note of that we have to stick together. I, I do think for gay men and lesbian women in the United States and in the United Kingdom, how quickly, you know, you said how quickly you forget your history. Um, you know, the people that J.K. Rowling says that she knows that are, you know, like lesbian women that feel that trans people are infringing upon their rights. Trans people are the reason that lesbians and gay men have the rights that they enjoy today, whether it's marriage equality, whether it's healthcare, um, life, safety, all of it. It is such a betrayal of our people. And... I really think, you know, not to quote Madeleine Albright, but I'm going to, there is a special place in hell, like a really special place in hell um, for people within the community that seek to be transphobic because you are siding with the oppressor. You're taking, you're taking something that was fought and given to you and then you're giving it to the oppressor. Louis Asquith, I am obsessed with you. I'm following you on Twitter as soon as we get off this. I've loved talking to you, but I do have to say... This is the point in the conversation where it's like, I do feel like the thing that you said right before I went on my rage, uh, my rage out was a really gorgeous point to end. But I do want to offer you um, a yoga person recess, which is, you know, you get to say anything that we need to say that maybe we didn't that maybe we didn't touch on that. Maybe you feel like we really need to get to that. We didn't. Um, is there this is our our final dance. And if you feel like you're danced out, you don't don't feel the pressure. But if you're like, I really wanted to be asked about something that we didn't get to, this is your glorious chance. Um, I mean, I think, I think we could, the case itself um, obviously is uh, one that that's com complicated and there are lots of different elements to it. I'm, I don't think it would be uh, nice of me to subject your listeners to a full uh, legal commentary about that. I think the the principles that we've spoken to, that we've talking about, we've we've addressed. I think this is about just making sure that we hammer home. We're talking about trans lives here, and let's remember. Actually, this is something that I don't think we have mentioned that some trans people are LGB too, and that we forget that when we're talking about trans people, we kind of a lot of people just blanket approach them with a, a, a heterosexuality. That isn't the case. Kate Borenstein, yes. Transgender lesbian who we're obsessed with. It's the first book on this I ever read in college, Gender Outlaw. I'm obsessed with Kate Borenstein. Um, also, just really quickly, I do have to say that right before when I offered you yoga person recess, nobody can see this because we're on Zoom. Mm. But... Um, I just have to explain it to people when I said like, now's your glorious chance. You gave me like the cheekiest raise of an eyebrow and you made a face that you hadn't made this whole time. It was really gorgeous. I just had to say it was 
I feel like if I would have had a Tyra Banks camera and like Britain's <laughs> Next Top Model in that moment, like that really could have won you the whole series, like not just photo of the week, but like the series. Um, I just, I couldn't bear not to say it. I, I had to get it out. I feel really complete. Louis, I'm obsessed with you. I'm obsessed with the work. I'm obsessed with mermaids. Where can people follow mermaids? Where can people donate to mermaids? Maybe someone wants to come volunteer or work at mermaids. I don't know. I don't want to limit anybody listening. Where can they get involved? Yeah, absolutely. There's so many things that people can get involved with. If you have the means to donate, please do. We Our, our income is predominantly from wider society. We can't keep going unless people donate. So if you have anything to spare, you're interested, you're passionate, you want us to keep going, please do donate. You can go to www.mermaids.org.uk slash donate. We're also on Instagram. We're on Twitter. Um, and I think, I don't know if we're on TikTok yet. We need to sort that out if we're not. Um, the kids are getting there. <laughs> um, and I think what, what, what I want to say as well is if you've been, if you've heard something that, that's, uh, that you have a comment around or you can offer your experience on certainly, you know, outside of the UK, outside of, or within the US or elsewhere, what's going on with hormone blockers where you are? We'd be really, really keen to hear from uh, hear from you and hear about that specifically. You can email info at mermaidsuk.org.uk or policy at mermaidsuk.org.uk. But thank you so much uh, for having me, Jonathan. Uh, it's been uh, yeah. amazing. And um, yeah, please just follow us. Do whatever you need to do to to help us emancipate gender. Yes, emancipation of gender. 2021 is our year. I am crossing my fingers. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Benes. Our guest this week was Louis Asquith, Director of Legal, Policy, and Operations at Mermaids. You'll find links to their work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thanks to her so much for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend, see vous play, and show them how to subscribe. That means if you please in French. I don't know if I say that a lot, but whoops. Our editor is Andrew Carson, and our transcriptionist is Alita Vunsha. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousWithJVN. Our socials are run and curated by Emily Bosick. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, Emily Bosick, Chelsea Jacobson, and Colin Anderson. 